Hello, baseball fans. Welcome back to the Sully Baseball Feed. This is a continuation of my preview of the upcoming podcast, Bold Durham Minute, which should be available on all the platforms where you get podcasts in just a couple of days. So this is a sneak peek at episode three, which again features me and Tierney Steele, the host of MASH Minute, where we break down minute three of the classic 1988 film, Bull Durham. Enjoy episode three, and keep an eye out on Twitter, at Sully Baseball, and at Bull Durham Min, where I'll be making announcements of where you can subscribe to the show once it becomes available on all the platforms where you listen to podcasts. Enjoy episode three, folks. Welcome to Bull Durham Minute. This is the podcast where we break down the 1988 classic movie one minute at a time. So put your hands together for your host, our own Paul Francis Sullivan. Feel free to call him Sully. Welcome back to Bull Durham Minute. This is the podcast where we break down my favorite baseball movie of all time, the 1988 classic Bull Durham, and we break it down one minute at a time. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please, I'm begging you, call me Sully. In today's episode, we are discussing Minute 3 of Bull Durham, which begins with Annie's bedroom and discussing about there's no guilt in baseball, and it ends with Annie walking down the street discussing Walt Whitman and what men will do if they think they're experiencing foreplay. So we have, the giggle is still there, we have back on the show today a person who is such a big fan of Bull Durham that she's never seen it, the host of mash minute and we're bringing her back for yet another totally out of context scene of a film she's never seen we have tierney Steele. welcome back to the show tierney hello thanks for having me again absolutely I really... so if you listen to the show the other day you know that tierney has not seen bull durham this is in the new... first three minutes in the first three minutes yes okay so she has seen three minutes of and there's a hundred and five to go and so we are now, the opening title sequence is still continuing with Susan Sarandon's monologue, and the camera is moving past the photographs on the wall, and you see her bedroom with all the wallpaper, mm -hmm. and as the camera moves across, and we see the credits for Rick Marzan, George Buck, Lloyd Williams, and Max Patkin, we see three images of Susan Sarandon's face. Two of them in mirrors and one of her oh, looking okay, sideways. Yeah. And we hear that a little bit of her connection of baseball and sex and also who she likes to sleep with in terms of ball players. So tell me what you think so far. What this is we now see a human being that's not a photograph. We see an actual person. We see Susan Sarandon circa 1988. And uh, thoughts, discuss, show your, <laughs> show, show your work. <laughs> All right, uh, I'll, I'll start with my thesis, my mission statement, and then we can work back from there. This is Annie, right? Yes. Okay, she is fabulous and I kind of love her. This is really upending the stereotype of who baseball movies are for. Right. Because here's the thing. Susan Sarandon is gorgeous. Yes. In 1988, Susan Sarandon is gorgeous. Yes. But she's also not 18. 
No. And she's not pretending to be 18. Not in the slightest. Bless her soul. She is a grown-ass woman putting on lipstick and perfume, looking fabulous, and walking out her door. Yep. Holy crap, I love her. Okay? <laughs> with, with the intention of getting a young man. Yeah. Yeah. I just... This is the baseball movie everyone's been going on about for years. This is great. This is like... I don't understand how men who work for Barstool have watched this movie and like don't get it. So I'm really hoping horrible <laughs> things don't happen in the next 105 minutes because I might cry. Because right. Susan Sarandon, as grown-ass woman who likes to have sex and watch baseball, is just like, yes, let's do this. I continue to be a little bit bewildered by her character where I'm like, okay, you're not what I was expecting and I don't really understand what's going on, but that's fine. What I do understand seems good. <laughs> what were you expecting? Like you, you knew this film existed. You know, you don't, I, you're not living under a rock. You know that this film no, existed. I knew this film existed. I think I did even know that Bull Durham is a pitcher, right? Do I have that right? I might not even uh, I'm not going right. to tell you. You've only seen three minutes um, of the movie. But uh, you just assume that it's going to be about him and his journey through the majors or whatever. Right. Like, maybe it starts in him getting ready to go to spring training. Maybe it starts with him washed up and then he has to come back. And that's what always happens in these movies. And the fact that the lead of this movie... I mean, her name's above the credits, but let's face it. I, you just assume that's because she's the girlfriend. Right. Like, the romantic lead and his girlfriend will be above the credits. Okay, fine. Right. And then the most important ball players will be underneath. And, like, the coach, you know? There's always a crusty old coach who's, mm -hmm. you know, top build. I don't know if we were on mic, but I was talking about the natural and how the, I think I should have been a farmer line is one of my favorite things. Right. Yeah. Just... Wow, it works in all contexts. <laughs> yeah, and Wilford Brimley and Richard Farnsworth as the manager and basically bench coach in the of the New York Knights is wonderful. You will, yeah, see... and I enjoy that sort of thing. Right, I obviously love these sports movies. I mean, I think the first thing I ever wrote as like a writer was about um, remaking Angels in the Outfield. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry, that's my second thing. But even so, I had a whole no thing one was like, gonna, No one was going to fact check that. You know that, right? I know oh, you damn it. I've outed myself. You, no one was um, going to fact check you on that. But yeah, one of my first pieces that I ever wrote is like, I am a writer, was talking about the Angels in the Outfield remake and that Angel season with Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. And so mm -hmm. it was just like, I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on how these baseball stories go. And... A grown woman being like, let's go pick out a hottie. Yep. <laughs> it's like, not what I was expecting. And <laughs> Even after you said like, oh, this is a romance that happens to be a baseball movie. Even that, then I was just like, yeah, that's still not what I was expecting. <laughs> I love that she is a mature woman. Uh, and mm -hmm. She is, uh, I'm not going to get into her age compared to the people you'll see in the film, but she makes no bones about that. She is going to find a younger man. Yeah. Uh, she looks fabulous, but is not mm -hmm. trying, as you said, she's not trying to look 
young. Stupid, you know, she's not like embarrassingly trying to look like a, like a teenager. She looks like a grown woman who is playing to all of her strengths. And one of the things, there's a lot of names of, and I'm not going to go into it right now because you're not familiar enough with the movie to understand some of the references, but there were other well-known actresses who were offered this part or who read for this part. I can't fathom anyone but Susan Sarandon playing this part. And it's, and it's like a Venn diagram of all of her qualities. And the fact that she's a mature woman and she's absolutely beautiful and sexy, but she also looks kind of striking. She has an unusual face, like her eyes express things. Her, the way her, and you'll see throughout the course of the film, even within a scene, her face can, exp- she's not a Barbie doll. Mm-hmm. She, she's stunning and unique. And that uniqueness of her appearance uh, in many ways plays a huge strength as the film unfolds. And as she's sort of primping herself, this is a, a moment when someone's alone. We're witnessing kind of an intimate mm-hmm. moment of her getting herself ready and putting on the last few, you know, bits of perfume, making her hair look great. And Sully, I got to tell you, I was scanning through trying to figure out where it is where she like fluffs her hair basically. Cause I was like, I really love that. Yeah. And I ended up pausing on, what is it? It's second 29. It's when the music by Michael Convertino yeah. uh, credit is up. Yeah. She's looking at herself in the mirror and like, She's not grinning, but she is smiling at herself in the mirror. Like, and yep, it is I look good. Beautiful. Tonight. It's so nice. Like she's just like, yep. I'm I'm good. I am completely 100% confident in myself. <laughs> and she's talking about the types of players that she wants to sleep with and she I'd never sleep with anyone who hits below 250 unless they drive in a lot of runs or a good club man up the middle. And she says that as she's putting perfume in between her breasts and sort of giving like there's a there's a double meaning of a good glove man up the middle in that particular moment. Do we know who the player on the baseball card that she has? I know. So I love that that's there. I love that that's there. (laughs) And as I mentioned in the previous minute, that that baseball works in and and as I've always said on on both Sully Baseball and the Locked on MLB podcast, baseball works best when the past, present, and future are all happening emotionally simultaneously. And we've seen all these images of baseball's past and the present with Fernando. And then there's the future, a baseball card of a player, a minor league player. And I'm glad you picked that up as she's talking about there's no one that she has slept with that didn't have the best season of their career. And lo and behold, one of the people you see and that's close, not that's not on the wall, but is close to mm-hmm. her is a baseball card of a minor leaguer. And that's you're astute that you picked that up. I, I, I would love to, especially you see it in, in a later scene as well. We return to this home, and it shouldn't be a stunning okay. moment that we return to this house. Um, but what <laughs> I know, I know, spoiler. Um, but I would love to just spend just an hour looking at every picture and asking the significance of why this picture here, because you know that she has put them up lovingly and for specific reasons. Why this picture of Eddie Goodell? Why this picture of Fernando? Um, 
and I won't tell you if we reveal anything along that line in the film. This is one of the reasons why an opening title sequence can be so important because you have a completely different point of view that you're watching this film on and a completely different character who even stands out. This podcast is dropping in 2020. So this was, what, 32 years ago this film came oh, out? Jesus, yep. And Ugh. this character would still be startling today and still be rare today in a sports mm -hmm. film. And imagine in how any film. Imagine <laughs> how it stood out in 1988. Yeah. And um, I love she's got like her foot up on the chair. She's getting ready. Oh, oh yeah, everything. She's and her, so fabulous. Her dress is fabulous. Her her top is fabulous. And, she's and, walking on dirt and heels. She's clearly a superhero. And but as we said, she's not trying to look like a Barbie doll. She's a she's no. a woman who is is confident who she is. The dog chases her and she walks out of this fabulous Southern house. <laughs> Super old, huge yep. house. Yep. And she walks across as we, and she walks up her wonderful uh, porch mm -hmm. and down the steps, down the dirt path, past the, the tree, the dog chases after her and she rounds the corner, a brick lined, street in an old neighborhood and she's walking down down the road there this is a new type of person new type of character and my god we it's it sets you up that this is not the natural we're watching something mm -mm. else mm -hmm. we're gonna go a couple of places here so i want i'm so, i love her outfit oh, oh i want it so bad <laughs> and she pulls it off I mean, there there's certain people, I'll say one of the people who was brought up as a potential Annie in this film, and there is a connection to The Natural here, was Kim Basinger. She had done The Natural, and she's great in The Natural. I think she had done Nine and a Half Weeks at this point, or it may have come out the same year. I don't know. I, I've, okay. I've, been wrong, I've been wrong before. But that, you know, I, I, who knows? She could have been great. Who knows? But there is... There's something about the uniqueness to Susan Sarandon's look that I would be worried that there would that Kim Basinger would almost be too much of, and I, and I don't mean this in an insulting way, but too much of like a Barbie doll. Do you know what I mean? Like she is that too that glamorous. Sort of, yeah, and that mm -hmm. you need that expressive face and that unique face that Susan Sarandon had to make this pull off. So. That's just my my opinion. Well, so this no bias of loving this movie, I'm sure. Yeah, I know, I know. I want to bring this up to you because I I don't do it much anymore, but I used to contribute to a, a movie blog called Stand By for Mind Control, and I wrote about 1988, and I wrote with the thesis: Was this the greatest year for Hollywood comedies? 1988, and I'm going to just list off some of the films that came out. These all came out in 1988. Hairspray, Beetlejuice, Big, Bull Durham, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, Fish Called Wanda, Midnight Run, Married to the Mob, Naked Gun, Twins, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, and Working Girl all came out the same year. And, and what I love is they're all comedies, but they're not all in the same 
Oh yeah, they're, wheelhouse. Like they're all they're all across the board. Well, in June, just in June, nineteen eighty-eight, June third, Big came out. June fifteenth, Bull Durham came out. June twenty-second, Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out. June twenty-ninth, Coming to America came out. Now everything is like, you know, the big movies are all, you know, superhero and Marvel. And, you know, we have, mm-hmm. a, we have a new Spider-Man every hour on the hour. But you, you take it two steps back and you look at that wild variety of great comedies that came out within one calendar year. And some mm-hmm. are romantic comedies. I mean, obviously you have some very dark comedies. You have very, very British comedy in Fish Called Wanda. You have the action comedies like Midnight Run. And you have the indescribable in Beetlejuice. But that all came out like one right after another. And like every week, there was a reason to go to the movies and laugh your ass off at something that holds. And, and for the most part, most of those films hold up as, as really terrific comedies. I stunned you to silence. I'm just thinking about Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and it makes yeah. me happy. That was one of the movies my grandma would tape everything and there were certain movies that we just latched onto and watch over and over again. So I probably I, had Dirty Rotten Scoundrels memorized at one point. I had that for Midnight Run and I'll never forget sitting in a movie theater in Palo Alto watching The Naked Gun and I was a huge fan of Police Squad which was the series that uh, uh, you and I talked about this briefly on Mashman. Yeah. That was the series that Naked Gun is basically a spinoff of a failed TV show called Police Squad, which was co-written by Bull Durham co-star Robert Wall. And when we were watching that movie, the place just, there was just tidal waves of laughter. Like it was just nonstop. And the nice beaver joke, I mean, people were like screaming WTF in the middle of the theater, just sort of like, you know, and it's such a specifically hilarious, politically incorrect, yet brilliant sight gag. Mm -hmm. And that came out the same year that we had Roger Rabbit. And, and I mean, what a year of comedies. The very next year was the year of Batman and sort of studios figuring out how to make franchise films and, mar- and mass market them. And, and that's not a slight on Batman itself. I do like Tim Burton's Batman, but the lessons that Hollywood learned from Batman have been less than ideal. And the year before, we just had one glorious year of great comedies. But it's like amazing. You bring up those films and everyone who is of our generation, uh, mm-hmm. has a comedy that came out that year that is like, this is, this is mine. How many people were Lydia Deeds yeah. in Beetlejuice or loved? I was this? just going to say, I know a little girl whose name is Lydia because of Lydia Deeds. Yeah. One of my friends named her daughter Lydia after that movie. Yeah. And and big is like I mean oh. big is like to me the Wizard of Oz I mean that's a film that just like, yeah. that's just gonna last forever and and have and, you seen uh, the video of Tom Hanks a fan asked him to do he can still do the shimmy shimmy cocoa pop no 
No. Uh, there's oh, a video oh, of him oh, doing oh, it with the I fan did, like I did, I a did. year ago. <laughs> I did. I actually so did. Oh, good. I thought you were referring to, um, what was it, Heart and Soul with Robert Loja on the, uh, but yeah, Shimmy Shimmy. Yeah, oh, I did. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did, I did see that. He video. just like burst into it perfectly. It was so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no way they could make big today because of Tom Hanks, Stoops, Elizabeth Perkins. And Tom Hanks is an 11-year-old boy. There'd be no way you can get away with that today. Even though it was directed by Laverne, there's no way you could get away with that today. But I'm glad they did. Yeah, <laughs> because, yeah. Because that was... Do you a, think you'd still get to feel her boob? Can you feel no, her I don't, boob no, the I don't outside think of her bra? No, I don't think they would be allowed to do any of that today. I don't think any, any part of that bad. would be allowed. Yeah, you know. Uh, but you know, and and maybe it's good that they can't. But I'm glad that they that we had this sort of relic of the '80s because one thing we really <laughs> learned rewatching films from the '80s, at least for me, is that the '80s were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the '80s gave you me. Be grateful. The '80s gave us Bull Durham and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and some of my favorite movies of all time, and some of my favorite podcasters of all time. <laughs> Good save. <laughs> I, you know, I, I was born in the 70s. I'm old enough to remember when there was only one Star Wars movie and it was called Star Wars. Mm. Uh, and there was no McClunky. Uh, there was... <laughs> That's, I really bonded with a friend in grad school because we were sitting around talking about like, oh, the first movie we saw in theaters. And she was like, I don't know that I want to share. And eventually she was like, yeah, my first movie in theaters was Star Wars, guys. Like, yeah. I'm a lot older than all of you. <laughs> my first one in theaters was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs because there was a period of time when Disney was, like, that, that was sort of their bread and butter. That Every year they would yeah. re-release three or four of them. And by yep. the time you were done with your childhood, you saw all the big ones, and then they re-released them again. This is one reason why they Which is for... hilarious. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was my baby sister's first movie in theaters. <laughs> uh, so first movie I saw was Snow White. I, I looped. Am, uh, I saw Peter Pan was the second film I ever saw. And the third mm -hmm. film I ever saw in a theater was Star Wars. And the fourth film I saw was Caligula. Wow, that's a... I'm kidding, it was not Caligula. Okay, thank God. I was trying to do the math, and I'm like, that's a jump? <laughs> no, it was not Caligula. I actually don't remember. It may have been, uh, I don't know, it probably was another Disney film like Gus or something like that. And then there was... Um, I, it wasn't Gus. You only know that because of my podcast. <laughs> I, I, saw, I saw Gus on Wonderful World of Disney on television, but uh, Superman, okay, the movie, sure. Superman the Movie was an early one for me. Oh, do you want to bet it was? I bet it was Pete's Dragon. I bet it was Pete's Dragon, which okay. came out in 77 or 78. Yeah. Um, my first, my, yeah. My first movie in theaters, which I only know because my mom wrote it down, is Cinderella. Disney Cinderella. Mm -hmm. And then I'm trying to remember, I don't think we went to the movies all that much because I don't remember seeing anything in theaters until Little Mermaid. And I know I must have been at some point between those in we like went four years. Time. We went all oh, the time. My, see, family, my family, that became it. We had, when we were living in Weston, Massachusetts, there was two theaters that were right nearby us. One was in Waltham and the other was in Wellesley. And they, they had dollar and a half movies. They were second-run movie theaters. Okay. And my parents called it the Little Theaters. And so, if we were, can we see this movie? And I said, let's wait for it to come to the Little Theaters. And that became this thing that we would do. But if it was a big film, like, you know, 
the Muppet movie or Empire Strikes Back or the Black Stallion, uh, you know, we would see that in the first run theater. But a lot of times we'd wait for the for the time to come to Waltham. And that was well, well into the 80s. Another thing I remember about 80s, the 80s and movie going in the 80s, is that going to the movies was a big part of birthday parties. And so if you got invited yes. to a birthday, you'd go to Papa Gino's, you'd get a Carvel cake, and they would carve up, you know, you'd fudgy yes. the whale or whatever. Fudgy the whale! Absolutely. <laughs> you get your fudgy the whale from Carvel, your participating Carvel ice cream store. You get your Papa Gino's pizza. And then mm-hmm. you pile into the car and you go to uh, Shopper's World in Framingham or the Sac Cinema in Natick or Chestnut Hill, the General Cinema at Chestnut Hill Mall. And if you get invited to enough birthday parties, you could see E.T. four or five times. Or you could see, mm-hmm. I remember I saw The Black Stallion three times or Superman the movie two or three times or The Black Hole. Um, mm-hmm. Ian Slater took us, I'll talk about this is, I mean, the fact that I'm still talking about Ian Slater's birthday party in 1980, Ian Slater's mom drove about seven or eight of us into the city, not in the suburbs. We drove into Boston on opening weekend to see The Empire Strikes Back. And Good parenting. Now, for the folks who don't understand the significance of this, Star Wars was our lives. We're finally seeing a second Star Wars film. I knew nothing about what was I was about to see, other than the fact that a character named Boba Fett existed because they released the Boba Fett action figure about a year and a half, and he appeared in the holiday special, which we all watched and were traumatized by. Then, in order to get tickets, there was no Fandango. There was no advanced tickets. You waited in line. She had about eight or nine second graders in line, and we were in line for hours and hours until we finally got to the box office window and she was like 10 please and we got mm-hmm. our 10 tickets that there was no other way to get tickets mm-hmm. other than to wait yep. in line we were just like we're gonna see new stars we're gonna see new stars we're gonna see new stars and we didn't mind we could have been in line for a month and mm-hmm. so then we're whisked in and we see walkers we see Yoda, we hear, I am your, you know, no, I'm mm-hmm. your father. We see carbon freezing and all of that unfolding with me going, what the hell is going on with my Star Wars movie? <gasps> uh, I think my, do you want to hear about the two times I saw Empire in theaters? Yeah, you, They're you're both about to, good. You're about to tell me right now. Woohoo. I'm sure the people who, you know, tuned in for Bull Durham love this. No, uh, when they re-released them. Yeah. I was in middle school and my first date was to see the re-release of Empire Strikes Back in theaters. I sat next to a boy who had was very a special, special edition or original edition. Yeah, yeah, it was cuz they were I right. think they were all special edition, but Okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll uh, Yeah, I sat next to my best friend who I had a raging crush on and my father and baby sister sat five rows behind us in an otherwise empty theater. We watched Empire Strikes Back. That was the first date I ever went on. And then it was still out in theaters and my sister and I were like, screw it, let's go. And it was, it had to be a Friday or Saturday night. And this was when your parents would drop you off at the movie theater, like barely stop the car, you jumped yeah, out and you went in. Out. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. 
And so we went in and they're gone. You know, they'll be back in two, three hours, whatever. And it was a madhouse. And we got in line and we bought our two tickets for Empire. And as we walked away, they started yelling, Star Wars sold out, Star Wars sold out. And people booed us as we walked over to have our tickets ripped to go in because we got the last two tickets to that showing of Empire. (laughs) And we were booed as we walked by. We sat all the way to the right in the first row. (laughs) And I I thought I was going to throw up during the Battle of Hoth because that angle... Yeah, not, the not most good. of the movie, totally fine. The Battle of Hoth, oh my god. <laughs> well. So yeah, I, I saw Empire in theaters twice and both were very significant milestone, like very clear, crystal clear memories. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, I, I can't think of anything. We gotta find somewhere to want to re-release the Bull Durham. I That's know, the only way this can end, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's no way to tie it back at this point. We, we've gone, <laughs> you and I have gone so far that we just, just got to wrap this up. <laughs> we um, killed it. Minute we three, killed we, killed we killed it. We killed it. Well, thanks for listening to Bull Durham Minute. This is where, <laughs> there will be no other episodes. Tierney Steele killed the show. Well, do you know what? Oh. Look at uh, I am so happy that you were part of this and we're able to meander the way that I meandered on your damn podcast you did on mine we're so good at this <laughs> so we're so good at staying you know I, just to tell you folks I was on her podcast talking about the movie MASH and somehow we started discussing how my mother taught me to cook eggplant parmesan and somehow it made sense but yes. hey yes, it, it, did. it all made sense this was Bull Durham one of the many tremendous comedies of the specifically the year 1988 and how one of the best comedies of June 1988 which was a banner month for the release of comedies and after this minute if you're listening to the show we're going to have guests on who have seen the movie Bull Durham and we'll be able to talk about impressions and deep dive and talk about some of the characters and we will be following Annie in minute four as she's walking down the street, and where is she walking to? Is she walking to a game? Is she walking to a bar? Is she walking to Ian Slater's birthday party? We're not 100% sure. Ian Slater, if you are indeed listening to this show, I've lost track of you. Send me a message by going to Twitter at Bull Durham Min and join the Bull Durham Minute Dugout, which is on Facebook. It's our Facebook group. I post a lot of stuff there. And that should be a lot of fun. Hey, Tierney Steele, where can people follow you? Oh, well, I'll be at the theaters getting the last tickets and rubbing it in the faces of everyone. No, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at One Steel Sister, O-N-E-S-T-E-E-L-E-S-I-S-T-E-R. Um, my website's onesteelsister.com. That's got links to my writing, the podcast I've guested on. So there will be a link to this one and the links to the four shows I've hosted so far, analyzing different movies one minute at a time. And I'm going to have a summer series forthcoming that will not be one minute at a time. But the first movie we're talking about is A League of Their Own, all baseball talk. It's going to involve traveling to different stadiums and a trip to Cooperstown and interviewing different baseball people. So 
I love it. I have a feeling I will be kidnapping you to talk on my podcast next. (laughs) And you'll be coming on to Locked On MLB to be talking about that as well. So that's all. (laughs) That's all great. Well, hey, Stephen Steele, thanks for being my first guest. As we finish minute three, we'll move on to minute four in the next episode of Bull Durham Minute. This has been Bull Durham Minute, a Sully baseball podcast produced through Boy in the Dream Productions. Cover art by Christopher J. Nessie. Music by Rob Paravonian. This show is available wherever you get podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bull Durham Men, on Instagram at Bull Durham Minute, follow Sully on Twitter at Sully Baseball, and catch his other podcast, Locked on MLB. And catch other Movie by Minute podcasts by visiting moviesbyminute.com. I am your announcer, Allison Whitley. Catch you at the next episode of Bull Durham Minute. Thank you.